So the benefits that we receive through the gospel, we talked about last week that we are a gospel-centered church. We are centered on the person and work of Jesus. His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the promise that one day he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And the benefits that we receive from that story, adoption into the family of God, forgiveness of sin, a righteous standing before God, and a pathway to holiness. But the really mind-blowing gift that, that is offered to us The overwhelming reality that we are invited into as followers of Jesus, united to him by faith, is the gift of God himself. The gospel provides us with a life with the creator of all things. By graciously establishing a relationship with him that is built upon a foundation of loving union, we get God. We get God. That is an overwhelming reality that should give us a little bit of pause. Now, last week, we talked about how the gospel secured for us reconciliation with God, which means that there was a time in humanity's history where things between us and God, they were good. They were good. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, like the afternoon. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham, he argues that it was likely not unusual for him to be heard walking in the garden in the afternoon, and that maybe a daily chat between the Almighty and his creatures was customary. In other words, one of the goals of God's very good creation was for him to dwell with his creatures in loving union in order to be their God and for us to be his people. Now that communion was broken because we chose selfish ambition over love, but the good news of the kingdom reestablished that broken relationship because God in Christ chose love over selfish ambition. And now, one of our primary purposes is to nurture and cultivate our lives with God so that we can live into what the Westminster Catechism defines as our chief end, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Pastor and author John Piper, he reframed the catechism a bit when he said that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And the point he's making is that when we slow ourselves down, when we stare deeply into the goodness of God, meditating upon who he is, contemplating his beauty and his wonder, offering him time and space in prayer, fasting, Sabbath-keeping, and stillness, it is in those times and spaces that the joy of Christ fills us as the Spirit of God shapes and forms us into the image of Christ changing us from the inside out so that we do the things that Jesus did, things that glorify the Father. Now, a little over a year ago, we worked through the topic of spiritual formation, and the definition I provided for you, and I have a slide for this, with the help of theologian Dallas Willard, was that spiritual formation happens through the things we do, spiritual disciplines or habits, that offer time and space to God for us to be with Jesus, abide with, or remain in, 
so that we become like Jesus, our sanctification, our glorification, and do what Jesus did in our own context, holiness and mission, so that the world might experience the love of Christ and catch a glimpse of what God is like. So in other words, cultivating a life with God where we intentionally and habitually structure our every day around the person of Jesus through the ordinary means of grace, things like word and sacrament, prayer, being in church, singing and worshiping God for God's glory and our joy. And the best place in scripture that I know to help us think about this and to talk about this is in John chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. We'll be working through verses 1 through 11 this morning. I also have it on the screen behind me, and you have it in your notes as well. So as always, context matters. We can't jump into a passage without knowing where we are in the story. That's, that's an unwise way to read scripture. We need to know where we are in the story. That matters. And so the passage we're looking at this morning is found in what has traditionally been referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. It's the Last Supper. Jesus had just washed the feet of his disciples. Judas is gone, journeying down his path of betrayal, and Jesus is delivering basically his last will and testament. And much of what he has to say revolves around the privilege we have as his followers of being in a relationship with him. There's a ton to talk about in this passage, but my goal this morning is not to dissect everything because we're going to be back in John's gospel come the new year, but my goal this morning is to highlight what Jesus has to say about cultivating our life with God. That's where we're heading this morning. That's what I want to talk about. That's what I believe God has for us. And so let's take a look, verses 1 through 2. It says this, I am the true vine... And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So the first thing that pops out that I think is important is that Jesus is identifying himself, I don't know if you notice, and we talked about this when we were in John's gospel, as the great I am. He says, I am the true vine. Those are the words that Moses heard when, 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 when the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush. He said, who are you? Who am I going to say sent me? He says, tell him I am who I am sent you. That's what Jesus is referencing here. He's saying, I am who I am. Also, he's identifying himself as the true and better Israel. That's that vine imagery that shows up in this passage. We're going to really dig into that come the new year. We're not going to dig into that now. What's most important about this passage for our purpose is the way in which God relates to his kids, those of us who do bear fruit. So like I said, the core value that we're looking at this morning is life with God. And according to this passage, a life with God means a life in which we give him full access to ourselves. The text says that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Another way to read that is that every branch that does bear fruit, he cleans. He cleans. Same word. Same word. In other words, to quote my old pastor, Christians are saints who still speak with the accent of a sinner. And God is in the process of assimilating us into his kingdom. 
That's what this whole life as a Christian is. It is God, by his spirit, assimilating us into his kingdom, making us better citizens of the kingdom of God, making us more like his son Jesus, making us holy. Sanctification is the theological term that's used to describe that. But here's the deal. It only works if we let him. Now this is important, and it relates to verse 3, which we'll get to in just a second, but here's the deal. We are truly loved by God. That is a fact. We are truly loved by God, not because of anything we bring to the table, because it really is God who made us alive and delivered us from the domain of darkness. And the way he did it was by his grace through faith. At the same time, at the same time, we are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And part of that working out means giving God access to all the corners and crevices of our lives. And so it means being honest with ourselves and inviting accountability into our lives. Finding somebody we trust who we could confess our sins to. For some of us, it might mean sitting down with a skilled counselor who can help us understand why we do the things we do, why we're bent in a certain way, and how we can, by God's grace, be pruned or cleaned so that we might bear fruit. And that's really the point of God's discipline. Because that's what that passage is about. It's about his discipline. Pruning is a disciplinary action. Cleaning is a disciplinary action. Those of you who are gardeners, and we talked about this last time we looked at this passage, if you are uh, a tomato gardener, that's really the only plant I'm, I'm any good at cultivating, um, if you're a tomato gardener, you know you have to prune a tomato if you're going to have a decent crop of tomatoes. You know you have to rip off the suckers. You know you have to you know, clip some of the, the, the branches that are not really produced, those yellow ones, and you have to kind of remove the disease from it. You know you have to do that in order to produce fruit. And that's exactly what this passage is dealing with. And that's a disciplinary action that you're taking upon the plant. I know that sounds weird, right? We don't discipline our plants, right? But, but put it in the context of having a child. You discipline your child not because you hate them, not because you want to hurt them, not because you want to, to, to mock them or make them feel shame, but at least I hope not, but the reason is, is because you want them to grow into a flourishing adult. You want them to be a good person. For those of us who follow Jesus, we want them to be followers of God. And so we're disciplining them. And so that's what we're dealing with here. God is disciplining us. But the point of that discipline is not so we can feel the hammer of God's judgment. That's not the point. But rather, it's so we can experience our salvation more fully, that we might bear more fruit. Life with God is a core value of ours. So we care about it. But we don't just care about it at the individual level. We care about this as an institution. We don't want to be a church that hides our sin away, that covers up its mistakes. We want to be held accountable. So even as, as your leaders, as, as your pastors, like we want to hear from you if we drop the ball. Like That matters to us. In fact, we've, we've talked about how we're inviting new, uh, new elder candidates into the elder process. It's going to be about a year. 
We've shared with you that we want to hear from you if there's any red flags that, that you see about Anthony Pelozo, about Scott Stangley, about Dan Bozak. We want you to reach out to us and let us know, like, hey, I noticed something about this person. And all of them agreed to that because we want to be a church that cares deeply about our life with God, not just individually, but as a community of faith. But why is it difficult? Why is opening ourselves up to accountability, confessing sin to one another, and being honest with ourselves and God so hard to do? And just to take like a quick poll, how many of you find that difficult? To open yourself up fully to God, to really let him in, or to let even your close friends who are walking with Jesus into some of the things you're struggling with. That's hard. You don't have to raise your hand. If you want to, you can. Feel free. I believe part of the answer lies in the shame that we pile upon ourselves. And so much of that shame comes from the false gospels we've had preached to us throughout the course of our lives from trusted friends, pastors, maybe even from this pulpit. I'm not immune to this. But look at what it says in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Did you hear what Jesus just said? Did you hear that? Already you are clean. As in, your status of being clean is something that took place in the past. It took place in the past, even while the pruning was going on. And, and pruning in this context, it does imply sin. It's God's way of removing sinful tendencies from our lives. So even while you were being cleansed, even while you are being cleansed, even while you will be cleansed in the future, Jesus says you're already clean. You're already clean. And that means you are fully cleansed. And that means that God views us through the lens of being fully cleansed. A lens that is shaped by the word. Notice it says already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And the word spoken to us in the context of John's gospel, that is Jesus Christ himself. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word. And then a few verses later it says, the word came and, and dwelt among us and became flesh. And so when John brings up the word in his gospel, part of what he wants us to hear is Jesus. He wants us to hear that word as, we, as, we, as, that, as that comes into our mind. And so Jesus is saying, because of the word I've spoken to you, because of who I am, because of what I'm going to do, because of the cross that I'm about to die on in, in, in just a day, you are clean. Already you are clean. And that means that when we do open ourselves up fully to God, we actually have nothing to be ashamed of. And the sin we're struggling through, his pruning process is one that is done in love with the goal 
of us bearing more fruit, which is simply another way of saying that God is drawing us into even deeper communion with him, communion that will birth good works that show him off to the world around us. And so a life with God is a life that receives discipline and correction, but never condemnation and shame. Because life with God is also a life where we are already fully cleansed, where we are already with Christ. With Christ. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, this is all past tense, in him, before the foundations of the world. And then later on he says that we have been seated, past tense, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is complete in the eyes of God. We are already cleansed. And so we can approach God we can approach him confidently, knowing that there is no condemnation, condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. That is really good news. A life with God is one in which we live where we are already cleansed. Where we are already cleansed, but there's more. Check out verses four through six. It says this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The point that is being made here is that we are called to, as followers of Jesus, to abide in Christ, to stay with him, to remain in him, to continue with him, which is simply to say that we are called to intentionally and habitually structure our lives around him. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he defines abiding as this, and I have a slide for this. Continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life. This is the sine nun of spiritual fruitfulness. The Christian or Christian organization that expands by external growth that merely mimics Christian conduct and witness but is not impelled by life within brings forth dead crystals, not fruit. In other words, do we love God? And if we love him, are we offering him the time and space necessary to cultivate a life with him? Do we love God? Because a life with God is not only one in which we receive the love of God, but it is one in which we also offer our love to God. And we offer him in very specific ways that love. This is what theologians describe as the ordinary means of grace. It's actually not that complicated. It is, by faith, 
opening this book and, and reading it and allowing the water of the word to cleanse us, to make us whole, to birth faith in us. It is by faith coming here on Sunday mornings to be with one another, to confess sin to one another, to encourage, exhort, and challenge one another. To be here by faith and worship God, to sing songs, not just words on a screen, but by faith, offer him worship. It's to, by faith, participate in the Lord's table. This is how God nourishes us. He's provided us with with the means. But notice how I I did not say just to do all those things as, as rote practices throughout our lives. No, notice I said, by faith. By faith. There's nothing magical about the table. There's nothing magical about this book in and of itself. But when we engage it by faith, when we engage God in prayer by faith, when we open ourselves up to one another by faith, trusting that God through his spirit is going to work in us, when we participate in worship, singing songs, hymns, spiritual songs to God by faith, God's changing us. The Spirit of God is conforming us more and more to the image of his son, Jesus. Working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Offering God time and space to have his way with us, to cultivate a life with him. That's good news. And this is not intended to to pour out a guilt trip on us. No, what what I'm articulating is an opportunity for us to go deeper in our walk with Jesus. It's an opportunity. God's not saying, like, you have to do this, but he is saying, this is the way you're going to know me more deeply. And he's not even saying, to those of us who are already cleansed, he's not even saying that if you don't do this, you're out. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But what he is saying, if you do this, you're going to know me more deeply. You're going to know the joy of your salvation more deeply. You're going to understand me more deeply. I'm going to know you in an intimate way. Like, he knows us fully. But, but the more we know him, the more we recognize how much he knows us. And so there's this beautiful reciprocal relationship that happens between us and God as we offer him that time and space. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's likened to, to any relationship that we experience, whether it's a, a healthy marriage or whether it's just a beautiful friendship. The more you offer that other person time, space, and, 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 and some of the deeper things of who you are, the deeper they know you, the deeper you know them, the more beautiful that relationship becomes. That's, that's, that's good stuff, and we all know that, right? We all know that, that we can either set up barriers in our relationships with others, or we can tear those barriers down so that we're known more fully. And we have people in our lives where we do put up barriers, and, and sometimes wisdom dictates that we do have boundaries, right? But for those who are closest to us, whether it's a spouse or a dear friend or a child, removing those barriers so that we can have intimacy, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that's why, that's why marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And we're going to talk about that later. But that's why marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, because a healthy marriage where you can be naked and unashamed before your spouse is what God is calling us to in his relationship with us. That's good news. 
That's good news. That's the depth of beauty that God is longing for his relationship with us. And how do we get it? By offering him time and space. In faith. In faith. There's more. Verses 7 through 10. Check it out. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so verse 7, it begins with another if-then clause. There's a few of them in this passage. And the if is our constant dependence upon God, our abiding in him, which means in this situation, the effectiveness of our prayer life, check it out, is contingent upon something. That something being our inner life with God, we, where we are intentionally and habitually cultivating. Right? Look what it says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish. So do you, see, do you see the connection there grammatically? If you abide in Christ, if you offer him time and space and cultivate this, this, this life with him, then ask whatever you wish and it'll be given to you. Our prayer lives are directly contingent upon the depth of our relationship with God. Which means that if that depth is not there, our prayer lives are hindered. And we actually know that experientially. Because we know that when we're not cultivating our lives with God, when we're not regularly by faith attending church, participating in the sacraments, worshiping God, reading our scriptures, right? When we're not doing those things by faith, we actually sense experientially this, this barrier between us and God when we go to pray, right? It's kind of like when, when, you, when you see someone that you haven't seen in a long time, there's like this like sort of awkwardness like, oh, hey, how are you? Like, it's been a while. And you see this more with like kids, because like as adults, we can like put on a face and pretend right? But, but kids are much more honest, which I appreciate. When they don't see someone for a long time, they like stand here and they're over there and they're just like, and then by the end of like, you know, an hour or two, they're, they're playing and doing whatever, but it takes them a minute, right? So, so, so to illustrate the point I'm trying to make, right, that's, that's what it kind of is with us and God. When we don't take the time to cultivate our relationship with him by faith, through the ordinary means of grace, in the everyday, normal, mundane of our lives, we kneel down before God and we got nothing to say. We kneel down before God and we like, are like, ah, it's been a while, Lord. Now the beauty, right, to go back to verse 3, already you are clean. So, so God's not creating that distance. It's us. God's right there. Arms wide open. But we're the ones that are like, hmm, 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 hmm. give me a minute, right? But God doesn't want that. There's a Seinfeld episode that I think might help illustrate. We'll see. Um, so Jerry just became friends with Keith Hernandez, baseball player. It's very early on in their relationship. Jerry gets a phone call where Keith asks him to help him move. Jerry says yes, but the best part about the scene, which I think all of us could relate to, is when he says, but I don't feel right about it. 
I mean, I hardly know the guy. That's a big step in a relationship. Kramer then storms in and tells him that soon he'll be driving him to the airport. It's a great scene. The premise of the scene is Keith Hernandez doesn't know Jerry well enough to ask him to move. That's a big step in a relationship. And Kramer throws it out there that an even bigger step is to drive someone to the airport. And we all know driving someone to the airport's a pain in the neck. And also helping someone move's an even bigger pain in the neck. There's no relationship there. What in the world's he doing? Why is he asking that? And so the point, at least I think it's the point, and I'm borrowing this from the notes of the Net Bible, is that the genuineness of our relationship with Jesus and the obedience that is birthed from that relationship, when both of these qualifications are met, we are now praying in Jesus' name and according to his will. So when we cultivate our life with God by faith, all of a sudden we're becoming more like Jesus because we're offering him that time and space so that now our prayers are being conformed more and more to his will. Right? That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why we ask for his will to be done, his kingdom to come on earth that is in heaven. Right? We don't just pray, like it says, ask of me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Like we actually know that that's not true. Like, if I ask for, you know, to win a million dollars in the lottery next week, like, God most likely, like, 100% is not going to answer that prayer for me. He's not. Why? Because that's not a prayer according to his will. And I know that's not a prayer according to his will. I know that because I read this book, and I sit with him, and I ask him to shape me and conform me, and I know that me having a million dollars right now is not going to draw me near to Jesus. I know that for a fact. Because God shows me as I read his word that I probably wouldn't handle that too well. But that's the point, right? The closer we get to God, the more we allow him to cultivate that life with him. And and the more we are drawn into deeper um, loving union with him and communion with him, the more our prayers start to look like the things that God wants us to be praying for. He changes us. And you might even notice that as you've walked with Jesus for however many years you've been walking with him, you might even notice that your prayer life has changed. The things that you bring to him in prayer have changed. I mean, just listen to one of your little kids pray. Now, some of the things they ask for are beautiful and like, oh my gosh, yeah, that is definitely in line with God's will. But when you ask for a dog every single night, like... That's not according to God's will. That's not his will. We know that for sure. Where am I? Now, truth be told, verse 8 is really interesting. I want to show you this, right? It says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So there's two ways to take this, grammatically speaking. There's two ways. The first way is to argue that this, by this my Father is glorified, is connected to the previous clause that our prayer lives are the thing that glorify God. But we can also read it that by this my Father is glorified, that we bear more fruit. So, so the jury's really out on how to take this, but theologically speaking, both are true. Which means that a life with God is a life marked by prayer and fruit bearing. Both of which produce a life that brings glory and honor to God. Prayer according to his will, and fruit-bearing are both items that we do in our lives with God that bring honor to him, that glorify him. 
Now, verses 9 and 10, I'm going to read them again because they are absolutely, stunningly beautiful. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What Jesus is communicating to us is that the same sort of love that he receives from the Father, the same sort of love that he receives from the Father, that's the sort of love he offers to us. Everyone should be mind-blown right now. That's how significant that is. The same sort of love that Jesus receives from the Father is the exact same love he is offering to us. That is such good news. That is such good news. Now, I'm not one to bring up the original Greek all the time, but this is, this is really cool and it's worth talking about. Because the verb has loved in that sentence, it's in what's called the aorist tense. And so the love being talked about is something that is perfect and complete. It's perfect and complete. Jesus depicts his love for his own, for us. This is how Jesus articulates his love for us, as something that is perfect, whole, and complete. That's the kind of love we receive from God. One commentator says it like this, that Jesus invites us to make ourselves at home in his love, which is a love that is just as large as his Father's love for him. The love in which Jesus loves us is a love that is just as large as the love his Father offers to him. And one of the ways we continue in that ocean of love is by walking in obedience. A life with God is a life abounding with love which becomes the wellspring of our obedience to Christ which demonstrates the reality of that love. When we obey, we're actually showing the world and God that we love him. Our obedience reveals our love for God. Our faithfulness reveals our love for God. And that's how it really works in all circumstances, right? right? Your kids can say sorry all they want, but if they say sorry and then do the exact same thing 12 seconds later, they're not really sorry. And, and, and we, can, we can laugh at when kids do that, but hey, guess what? We do that too, as adults, as people who ought to know better. We'll say, I'm sorry for something, or we'll, we'll, we'll make a commitment to someone, but then we'll immediately go back on that commitment, and our word, it just means nothing. See, what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying, is that your love for me has to be more than just your words. It has to be more than lip service. It's a life lived. That's what love is. It's, it's, it's action. It's, it's how we function in the world. That's what demonstrates our love for God. Now, again, to, to be clear, what does it say in verse 3? Already you are clean. So when we fumble the ball in that obedience, God's not bringing the hammer down. No, he's inviting us to repent of it and figure it out because already you are clean. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be in a life with God. This is such good stuff. Because there's something so beautiful and big about it. And it's all based on the foundation of the fact that we are already clean. We're already clean. And so all that flows out from there, we are already clean. Which brings us to our final point. So I had an interesting experience this week while I was teaching at Ambassador. I asked my students if they ever felt like Christianity was just a list of all the things they're not allowed to do. In one of my classes, almost every hand went up. It was one of those moments that made a ton of sense, while at the same time, it absolutely broke my heart. And so the question I've been wrestling with is, what are we really communicating about the nature of this thing called Christianity? What story are we telling, and what gospel are we preaching? Because if we read the words of Jesus, it says in verse 11 that he speaks these things so that his joy might be in us, and that our joy might be full. And so I'm wrestling with this because I actually understand where they're coming from. And I bet many of us in this room understand where they're coming from. As Christians, especially those of us who have come out of more fundamentalist backgrounds, we've spent so much time and energy telling the world about everything we're against. We talk constantly about the horrors of the world, the culture, about how horrific everybody is. We built walls instead of bridges, and we've locked ourselves away from the sinners out there out of fear that their sin might rub off on us. But see, that's not the story of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 9, in verse 19, it tells us that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The point I'm trying to make is that we've taken the joy of God's salvation and we've hidden it away and we've replaced it with drudgery. Now, there is a cost to discipleship. There is 100% a cost to discipleship, but that cost is not our joy. That cost is not our joy. There is a standard that we're called to live by. But as we've been saying, adherence to that standard, it's birthed out of love. It's birthed out of love. The love we receive from Christ and the love we have for Christ. A life with God is lived basking and delighting in that very love. And that's my hope for us as a church, that we would be a community of faith that basks and delights in the love of God, that we would abide in Christ that we would intentionally and habitually structure our lives around the person and work of Jesus. If we simply live in a state of fear because of the world out there, if we simply live in a state of constantly telling everybody how horrible everything is, then we actually don't trust God. But see, God's saying like, yeah, I, I know. I know this, the world is broken. I know. 
and know that you're going to have trouble in the world. But he also says, I have overcome the world. And how did he overcome the world? Through the cross. Like, that's the reality of the story, is that the love of God is cross-shaped. And so we actually don't need to walk around postured in fear. We don't need to walk around worrying about how there's sin around every single corner, and then if we just keep everything just so, we'll be okay. Right? That, there's a prosperity gospel in there if we, if we live that way. That if we just make sure we do everything right, everything will be okay. And, and not only is there a prosperity gospel in there, but there's also like a ton of anxiety that brings upon us. And maybe some of you have experienced that anxiety. Where like the minute you mess up one thing, you think like, oh, he's bringing the hammer down and everything is going to fall apart. But that's not the gospel. You're already clean. That's not the gospel. Romans 12.1 calls us to offer our entire lives to God as living sacrifices, which could be taken in this radical sense to sell everything, to move to the mission field, maybe somewhere in Africa or South America, but it could also be taken in the regular and mundane sense that every part of our lives belong to God. There is no divide between sacred and secular. Washing dishes, putting our kids to bed, driving to work and walking through our neighborhoods are all spaces where we are called to cultivate our life with God. They are all spaces where we are called to abide in Christ. Now imagine if, I like imagine if questions, because it helps us to think. It helps us to, to maybe paint a picture in our minds. Imagine if Redeemer Fellowship becomes known for the joy of the Lord. That when people find out that you're a member here, their first thought is that this is a place where people experience God where they taste the goodness of the Lord and the joy of his salvation. Imagine if it really is true that the kindness of God leads to repentance and that we can be conduits of that very kindness because we spend our days, moment by moment, swimming in the oceans of God's love. Now, that's an imagine-if question, right? None of us are there. That's aspirational, but it's certainly something we can aim for individually and corporately. We can aim for that reality, and it's the aiming of that that excites me, because as we aim for that, we're going to hit the mark sometimes, and we're going to be changed as a result of it. If we truly believe that the most important and as the Westminster Catechism defines it as the chief end of our lives is to glorify God, and we believe that we glorify God by enjoying him forever, if we really believe that, and we really believe that Christianity is actually something that, that brings joy and delight and, and, and wonder and excitement, if we really believe all that, then we will offer God the time and space to have his way with us. But it is a question of what we believe. And so, yeah, here at Redeemer Fellowship, we value a life with God built upon the premise that we are already clean. The gospel cleanses us. 
So a life with God is something we truly value. And my prayer is that all of us would value it so that we can, as it says in verse 11, experience Jesus' joy and that that joy might overflow, that we'd be filled to the brim. That's, that's our chief end. That's what we're here for. And guess what? That becomes contagious. That's when we have the opportunity, when people ask, to give a reason for the hope that's within us. But if we walk around putting out drudgery, putting out fear, putting out anxiety, talking about how all the world is just going to hell in a handbasket, like if that's really how we function, nobody's going to ask us about the hope that's within us because guess what? There ain't no hope. Oh, but there's tremendous hope that the kingdom of heaven offers to us. That is such good news. That's what we possess. That's why the parables talk about the kingdom of heaven as being something that when someone found it in a field, he sold everything he had and sold it because he wanted enough money to not only buy like the small portion, but the entire field. Like, like that's how valuable the kingdom of heaven is because of what it actually offers to us. It offers us God and God provides us with joy to the uttermost. That's good, good news. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you and we desire you deeply. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Renew a right spirit within us all, Lord God. Help us to long for the day when we will see you face to face. Help us to practice that now. And Father, whatever baggage we might be holding on to, whatever false gospels we might believe, whatever broken understandings of Christianity we might have adopted, Father, I pray that those would just fall away, Lord God. And that what would be left is the joy we experienced that, that first day we tasted. Lord, help us to know you deeply. Help us to cultivate this life that we get to have with you. Father, you are good and you love us. And it's your kindness that has drawn us into this relationship with you. Help us to embody that. Help us to experience it. Help us to have a joy that runs so deep, Father, that it just reshapes everything we do and everything we are. God, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.